Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Please keep your Bibles open this morning to uh, the passage that Steve just read for us, Romans 8, 31 to 39, page 944. We're going to be looking at some things in its context, and it'll be helpful to you if you have it there in front of you. Uh, We are going to continue our year-long sermon series on prayer. Uh, Some of you have asked why a whole year on praying, not just on prayer in general, but praying for God's kingdom to come. And there's lots of great answers, lots of great reasons we're doing this. And one of them is because none of us are satisfied with the way things are. Are you? Are you okay with the world you see around you? When you look around and you see the selfishness, the brokenness, when you see children suffering, when you see poverty, when you see famine, when you see pain, when you see all these things, do you go, eh, okay. No, none of us are okay with it. And so we want to pray for God's kingdom to come because God's kingdom is not just about saving souls and it is, it's about the whole thing. When King Jesus comes, what does he want? He wants the whole thing, everything that he lost and he's going to redeem and restore and make it all new. Jesus says, I'm making all things new when he brings his kingdom. And so we're not satisfied with the way things are. So we pray for his kingdom to come. And then we have to ask, well, then why don't we pray for the kingdom to come all the time? If you and I aren't satisfied, and I heard a, a, I mean, I heard a reaction from you at that point. No, we're not okay. If we're not okay and the kingdom fixes it, then why do we have to talk about it? Why aren't we just doing it? Why aren't we praying all the time? And I heard a story this week from a friend that helped me put words to that. He was uh, telling our group about a video series he had watched many years back from Paul Millard, who wrote the book, A Praying Life. Some of you've read it, one of the best books on prayer. And this video series from Paul came way before the book. And it's one of those old 80s, 90s, kind of grainy VHS, low production quality kinds of things. And Paul in this video is leading, you know, like a small group. There's a group gathered around in folding chairs. And he's got over on this side of the group, he's got an easel with a big white piece of paper. And he asked the group, tell me something about God. What is God like? Just say some things, he said. And he lifted out on the paper what they said. And they gave a really great, theologically good list of things about God. They said, he's loving, he's holy, he's just, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's eternal, he's infinite, he's sovereign. I mean, just what a wonderful list of things that are true about God. And then he said, great. And then he kind of moves away from that easel. He kind of comes back to the content and he takes the group through, you know, a long portion of the content, long enough for them all to kind of forget that list over here. And then he comes through the course of his content to another blank list he has over here, another blank piece of paper. And he says, now tell me some things about your prayer life. What's prayer like for you? And they lifted many of the things that you and I would say. It's hard. It's boring, it's difficult, it feels pointless. I feel like I'm talking to no one and you just list out all these things. And then he says, okay, (laughs) if this list is true, why is this list the case? 
You and I can make a great list about things that are true about God, but when it comes to praying, it's like we forget all about that list and we just come with a blank slate and say, well, this is difficult and hard and boring. Why would talking to a God like this be hard and difficult and boring? And the answer is because we don't often connect the dots between the two, do we? When we come to pray, we functionally forget all that's on this list. One of the reasons that makes it hard is that there's something true about God that we functionally forget when we come to pray, and it is his love. You and I, when we come to pray, are not functionally, fully, in every part of our heart and story convinced of God's love, but we have this lingering question And maybe it's a silent kind of murmur in your heart. You know, the volume is just turned to like level one. And you're convinced of God's love in lots of parts and places of your life. But man, maybe there's that one part where you're not so sure. Because maybe there's something you've done, something you've said, and the guilt and shame of which you just can't shake. Or maybe there's a trial, some difficulty, some pain, either in your life or a loved one's life. And man, the volume isn't at just a one, it's like a 10. And you can't hear anything about God's love with that volume turned up to 10. And so are you and I going to come to the Father and pray for his kingdom to come if we have either just a low level distrust of his love or it's cranked up to 10? Either one is going to be a barrier and a roadblock to our prayers. And so if if you and I are going to pray for the kingdom to come, then we have to be convinced of what this passage says. That no matter what, as one man put it, no matter what the bad inside of you is, and no matter what the bad outside of you is, God loves you. God loves you. So what we want to do this morning is look at this passage from Romans 8 and look at the bad inside of us and say, but God still loves us. Look at the bad outside of us in the world around us and say, but God still loves us. And that will be our two points. First, we're loved despite what's inside of us. And second, we're loved despite what's outside of us. So first, we're loved despite what's inside of us. Or to put it another way, One of the roadblocks that keeps us from praying is the persistence of guilt. The persistence of guilt that can show up in questions that maybe we don't often verbalize, but we think to ourselves like, how could God listen to my prayers when I'm so inconsistent? When I'm so hot and cold? How could God listen to my prayers when I'm so selfish? when I'm so given to bursts of anger and cutting words, when I'm so stuck on the same sin for what seems like years and years. How could God love me, we might ask, when I failed him so badly or I failed my loved ones so much? How could God love me enough to listen to me when I ask for his kingdom to come when I still have so much wrong inside of me? That's a question that if you're not asking and you've never asked, you're probably not paying attention to what's going on inside of you, right? If we're clued in to anything inside of us, it has to at least surface that question in some way, shape, or form at some point for us. Because all of us are built with an ingrained sense of morality that we can't shake 
And those who say there might be no God, there's no ultimate transcendent sense of right and wrong still operate by a sense of right and wrong. That's why we see so much moral outrage in the world around us all the time. Even as our world has grown more distant from God, moral outrage has increased. It seems like an oxymoron, but it makes perfect sense when you know that you and I just can't turn that part of being human off. And there is a standard that all of us know deep down inside. Maybe we don't say it, but we know there is a standard and it comes out in different ways and shapes and forms. Of course, we know from the scripture that God's standard is to love him perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly. That's the standard of right and wrong, which is so much more than just do no harm to those around you. That standard is never miss a chance to do good. How's that for a standard? How's that for a standard you can meet? Of course we can't. But even if a person on the street doesn't say, yes, that's the standard from God, love God, love neighbor. We all have a standard and whether we get it from another religion or we just cobble it together throughout our lives, each and every person has a standard of what they see the world ought to be and they hold others and themselves Although inconsistently, they hold others and themselves to that standard. That's the filter through which they see the world, where that sense of right and wrong comes from. And that's why we have this persistence of guilt. Even in a culture that grows distant from God, that's why this persistence of guilt and a sense of moral outrage and condemnation of others continues. So since we all have it, at least in some way, shape, or form, what do we do about it? Well, Paul says in verse 31, let's just follow his thought. He asked the first of many questions. Did you hear them? I think there's six or seven questions in this text that we read. And the first one is, what then shall we say to these things? So what are these things? Well, Mark talked about them last week. And in some sense, it's Romans 1 through Eight, so we don't have time to say it all, but just the most immediate context, these things refers to how nothing can stop God's grace for you. And when I say nothing, when Paul says nothing, guess what he means? Nothing. Nothing can stop God's grace for you. Nothing can stop God from intentionally and on purpose in a sovereign way beginning to work his grace in your life. Nothing can stop God from sovereignly continuing his work of grace in your life through all the things that he brings into your life. And nothing can stop him from finishing that beautiful, amazing, intentional, on-purpose work of grace in your life. These things Paul is saying is that God's grace is real, it's personal, it's on purpose, and it's unstoppable. What are you going to say to that, Paul says? What's your response? And instead of answering it, he asks another question. He says, or no, excuse me, that comes later. In verse 32, he answers it with this statement. He who did not spare his own son, oh, it is a question. Man, I'm gonna get my head around this in a minute. Y'all bear with me. I do know what a question is. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What a great question to ask in response to, what's your response to God's grace? Well, there is a God who did not spare his own son, gave him up for us, so how's he not going to give you everything too? Do you hear the argument? If God gave you Jesus, what Paul here calls God's 
own son, do you think he's going to shortchange you later? If he gave you the most precious thing at first, is he then going to hold anything good back from you at the right time and in the right way? Of course not. It's his own son. It's not just any son, but the one that is his very own, the one that he loves. And you know what God did with his own son here in this verse? He did not spare him. Oftentimes, we as moms and dads will spare our kids the worst of the consequences. And that might be the right thing at the right time. Lots of factors go into that. But we know what it means to spare someone. But in the case of Jesus, he was not spared. Not one bit. In other words, God, as he goes further, he says, gave him up. Or God handed him over. To what? To his justice to his wrath, to his punishment that you and I had earned. God spared us, but did not spare Jesus. He did not give us up, but he gave up his own son. The text says then, for us all. And in context, all here means what Paul talked about back in verses 29 and 30. Those who he foreknew or loved, those who he predestined and chose, those that he called and justified and glorified. Do you know what else those people are called in Romans? Sinners. That's who God gave up his own son for. That's who God poured out his wrath and justice and punishment on for the sake of sinners. While they were still sinners, God loved them enough to pour that out. As we sang in the song, to see the pain written on Jesus' face of that. To bear the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning his blood-stained brow. As he was not spared, he was given up. That is what our guilt needs to hear. Your guilt needs to hear all the punishment is poured out on Jesus, so there's none left for you. There's therefore now no condemnation. There's nothing left for us to feel guilty about. And that's why he goes on in verse 33 and asks another question. Yes, it is a question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge? And you might think, well, I get charged with a lot of things. God's elect gets charged with all kinds of things all the time. They get charged from other people. They bring charges against us. Some are false, some are true. People we have failed and let down can remind us of our sins and failures. Satan can come, the scripture says, and accuse us or charge us and put in our consciences the memory of those things that we failed at and tries to let them ring loud and true. And you yourself bring charges against you yourself, right? You say, ah, but I remember what I did. I remember what I said. I remember what I didn't do. I remember what I should have said. I remember that pain that I caused that person. I remember how I acted stupidly and selfishly. And we berate ourselves. We beat ourselves up. But the implied answer to the question is not just that no one can bring a charge against you, but when they do, what does it matter Because God is the one who justifies in verse 33. So who cares what other people say? Who cares what Satan does? Who cares what you think? If God has justified you, who is to condemn? If God has pronounced the verdict of not guilty, innocent, as righteous as Jesus, justified, what does it matter when people bring charges against us? 
God wants us to hear his grace, to hear his forgiveness, to know that as it goes on in verse 34, to know that Jesus is the one who died, who paid the price for that sin. And more than that, who was raised. And I love that Paul says that. Did you ever think about what it would say about the effectiveness of Jesus' death if he had stayed dead? If Jesus had taken on himself all of your sin, gone to the cross to pay for it, and stayed dead, what would it say? Not paid for. The sacrifice wasn't enough. What Jesus paid was not enough to cancel the debt. But because he was raised to new life, what does that say about your debt? Paid in full. The resurrection validates and proves that Jesus' death on the cross was enough for your debt to be canceled. And then Paul goes further there in verse 34 and he says, and Jesus is even sitting at the right hand of the Father. In case you had any doubt that your debt was paid, do you think that Jesus could sit at God's right hand? if you had any debt left whatsoever, because if you had debt left, Jesus had debt left. And if Jesus had debt left, he's not sitting at God's right hand. But there he sits because the debt was paid in full. So not only is his fellowship with the father that was broken on the cross restored, so is your fellowship with the father then restored. So then what do we do when we struggle? When our thoughts accuse us, when others accuse us, when Satan accuses us, when we feel like God doesn't love us and so why pray for his kingdom to come, what do we do? I want you to get not just general, I want you to get specific. Take this specific lie and apply a specific truth to it. Don't just say, I'm a sinner in general and God has redeemed me in general. Say, I'm a sinner at this particular point in time in this particular way and God's grace is specific and real enough to deal with that specific sin. Let me give you an example about a story about a father I heard. And this dad had a practice when his kids were little, when he would put them to bed at night, he would ask them, do I love you because you're good? And at first the kids said what we all would say, yeah. <laughs> but they learned over time the right answer and they would rehearse it. Do I love you because you're good? The kids would learn to say no. And then the dad would ask them, do I love you when you're bad? And at first the kids thought about it and they said, no. But they learned the game. They learned to rehearse it and they would say, yes, you love me when I'm bad. And then the dad would ask them, okay, then why do I love you? And they learned the answer was because I am your child. And that happened night after night, week after week, month after month, year after year. And then one day, even though the kids never protested and said, no, dad, you don't love me. One of the sons was distraught crying, guilty, and with some pulling and prodding, mom and dad finally figured out that he had gone to one of those gumball machines. They don't have them as much anymore. Remember, you put the quarter in the slot and you turn the handle and out comes the candy, one piece for one quarter, or nickel if you're old enough, right? <laughs> it's at least a quarter or two or three or four now. Anyway, he had figured out that machine was broken and he could get endless candy from this machine and he had. He had stolen what was not his. And he had, even though he had liked it in the moment, he had come home and he was guilty. And so they went through the whole thing you do as mom and dad. He had to take his own money and go pay the store back. 
But he came home and even though they had talked through it, he was still in tears. He was still feeling so guilty. And so that dad took him and you know what he asked him? Do I love you because you're good? No. Do I love you when you're bad? Yes. Why do I love you? Because you are my child. And it seemed to help. They had a good talk about it. The sun went off. And then a few days later, the sun brings a cartoon picture back of him and dad sitting in a chair. And there's that little caption bubble, you know, like you have in the comics. And it says, I can't do anything to make you love me less. Do you see, he had learned it in general every night. But then there was a specific sin. And until it got specific, until the sin was specific and therefore grace was specific, it didn't matter. And so when your conscience accuses you and Satan and others say, God doesn't love you to overcome that sin. You've done it a thousand times. He can't keep loving you. Apply his grace in that specific way. Take all the truth of these verses and like water, pour it on the flame of your guilt. And don't you think that will draw you to pray more? Don't you think that will remove a barrier that we all feel that we are loved despite what's inside of us? Well, that's our first point. Let's look secondly at how we are loved despite what's outside of us. We're loved despite what's not only inside with our guilt, but outside of us. Those circumstances that we talked about of a sinful and broken world that can raise the level of doubt because maybe there's one huge trial, one huge heartbreak, one huge grief in your life, or maybe it's just the accumulated weight of it just never seems to end. Not just for me, but for my family's life, for my friend's life. Whatever it is, that's why Paul comes in verse 35 and asks another question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he asks, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? And he's not listing out all the things. He's just giving us a short list of what there could be. These things that can cause us in big and small ways to question the love of God. And in our day and time, thankfully, by God's grace, we don't really deal with the last four in the list, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, but Christians have throughout history. And do you know what God's love did while they went through that? It stayed, it remained. Even though they might struggle, many Christians today and throughout history face the persecution for their faith, or for their faith that often we don't. But knowing that you can't be separated from Christ's love when that persecution comes will enable you to endure it and to not change your principles just to have power or freedom from that persecution. But we do face the first two in the list, trouble and distress. Paul takes two words that almost mean the same thing, to say a difficult set of circumstances, not arising from something inside of you, but arising from outside of you. And that could come from a relational trauma or betrayal. It could come from an accident that leaves you physically broken. It could come from an illness or a sickness. It could come from grief, the loss of a loved one could come from a loss of a job or resources. What is it for you that if you're honest causes that either volume one level of doubt about God's love or that volume 10 can't hear anything else, doubt God's love? What is it for you? Well, whatever it is, the first thing you need to see from this verse is there in verse 36, Paul quotes from Psalm 44, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I thought for a long time, why does Paul quote that verse? It seems to break up his flow of thought. 
And then when you go back and you look at that psalm, what you realize is the psalmist is saying, God's people always struggle. God does not deliver them from pain and trial and grief and loss and hurt. So the first thing we need to know because Paul quotes that psalm is, it's normal. It might not be nice, but it's good to know it's normal. So many of us struggle thinking, I'm the only one who suffers like this. Everybody else's life is okay. But just know that it's not different for you. It's normal to struggle. And then we need to see also that nothing can separate us while we struggle from Christ's love. When you feel the severity of either that one hurt or just the accumulated weight of so many, remember that if there was a time and a place for Christ to separate you from his love, do you know when that would have been? At the cross. If there was a time when he was going to say, whoa, no, no love for them, I'm gonna back away. It would have been before he faced what he faced on the cross, that separation and pain and punishment and wrath and justice of God. But because Jesus did not abandon you there, Paul is saying nothing now can separate you from his love. Nothing, not the pain, not the illness, not the grief, not the trial, nothing can separate. And that's why we judge God's love by the cross and not by our circumstances. Because so often we wanna judge Christ's love day to day, minute to minute, or even by a certain season of life. But your day or even your season of life, maybe this long-term, years-long trial is just a blip in the gripping novel of God's love for you. And you don't judge the novel by the punctuation mark. You don't judge the novel by the clause. You put it in the context of everything that he's doing and know that nothing can separate you from his love. And now we have to have a nuanced approach to this because many of us have been hurt when we are in pain and someone comes up and takes the wonderful truths of these verses and just stamps it on us and says, be happy. Please don't do that. We need a nuanced approach to this. I was reading in the book of Daniel this week and Daniel's one of the most wise and godly men in the scriptures. And it struck me that even in the last half of the book, he has this vision of great pain that's gonna come on God's people and then they are delivered and God rescues them and there's victory. And he says there's gonna be pain so that when they're going through pain, they're not surprised. Kind of like what Paul says here, right? Expect it. And he says, but that's not the end of the story. There's going to be victory. God's going to rescue you. And therefore, Daniel, note what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, happy, happy, joy, joy. God wins in the end. Do you know what he did? It says he was overcome and he lay sick on his bed for days. A lot of you would look at a man like Daniel who was overcome by the pain and grief he saw in the world and you would say, get up, wimp. Life's tough. Stand back up. And he did but he allowed himself that emotional reaction. He allowed himself the wisdom to say, do you know how you should feel about sad things? Sad. (laughs) Do you know how you should feel about things that are hurtful? Hurt. So you don't just come along with the wonderful truth of this and say, get over it. You come along and you're enabled now to weep and to grieve and to hurt with those who need it, but also to minister a long-term perspective that we all need, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Paul isn't just saying, hey, that's enough. He says even more. He says you're going to be more than a conqueror, more than a conqueror in all these things, 
tribulation, distress, persecution, etc., you're going to be more than a conqueror. And in Greek, that's one word. It's the word for conqueror plus the prefix where we get hyper. Paul says you're going to be a hyper conqueror, a super conqueror in all these things. And you're like, what a joke. (laughs) This trial still goes on. It doesn't go away. How is that true? Well, go back to what he said in verse 28, that God works all things together for good. And that means he might not take the pain and trial away when you want. He might, but he might not. But if he doesn't, it's because he's working out something beyond our wisdom and understanding to say, I'm going to use even this pain in your life for good. Do you hear the victory there? Do you hear what God is saying? I'm going to take even the worst the fall has, and I'm going to use it for my purposes. I'm not just going to preserve you apart from it. I'm actually going to take it and use it. Satan means to hurt you. He means to throw all these things at you. And God says, watch this. The worst Satan has, I'm even going to redeem and use it so that it will be worked together for good in your life so that you will be more than a conqueror. That's why he said back in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he's working all things together for good, even these terrible things that we've mentioned, who can be against you? Nobody, nothing can stand against us. And so again, you wanna apply this specifically and not just generally. What is it for you? Either that volume one or volume 10, either that one big thing or just the lots of little things. What is it for you? In that particular place, rest in Christ's power for you. Because when he says that he sits at God's right hand, it's not just that he's in the presence of God. That's a place of authority. He who sits at the right hand of God is in charge over everything. So even this hard thing in your life, God has power over it. He's not letting it get out of control. He has power over it. He's using it for your good. And remember also that Jesus is praying for you. Do you know what he's praying? never says exactly, but I think he's praying, God, use this for good. God, preserve them, keep them, and let them be more than a conqueror. Take away their guilty conscience. Let them know what I've done for them. Let them know that the price is paid in full. Let them know that whether they feel guilty or whether they're burdened by trials, they can look right into your face and pray and have access to you. So come back with me to our two lists. Take what we've learned about God's love shown us in Jesus and apply it over here on this side. There's a quote that I love that says, when we perceive the greatness and goodness and love of God, our prayers become not so much a seeking after God for our purposes, but of offering of ourselves to him for his purposes and praying that his kingdom will come even in the hard things, that he'll use it as he reigns and rules for good in our lives because his grace is unstoppable. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice so much, even as we hurt and grieve, even as we have pain, even as we're, or even as we're stricken with guilt, Father, we rejoice in your grace. And we pray, Father, that we would see what is in our life through the lens of your truth, that we would respond to it, trusting that truth, and that we would be used for your glory and for your honor. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.